Brethren, please begin to speak to the Lord. Ask Him to speak to you this morning. We are not here by accident. He arranged that all of us will be here today. Ask Him to speak to you. There is a word for you and there is a word for me, even as we look up to Him this morning. Ask Him to open your heart. Ask Him to open your eyes, to see the invisible, to hear the inaudible. Ask Him to do something to you for the times in which we are living. Times that it's very obvious to all of us that they are indeed perilous times. Invite the Lord to be with us and to speak clearly that our lives will truly be encouraged this morning. In Jesus' name. Our Father, we want to thank you again for another opportunity for us to look into your word this morning. You have gathered us again, your children, before you, Lord. I am persuaded that there is a word for all of us. Father, I'm only a mere vessel. I'm only a very little child. I'm asking that your word will come. Look beyond me and let your word come this morning to all of us, Father. Speak and let your words turn our lives around. It will not just be that we went to church. It will be that I heard God saying this. Please do it for us, Lord. And all the glory will come back to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. We thank God for another opportunity to look into his word this morning. And uh, the title of what we are sharing today says, In the last days, perilous times. In the last days, perilous times. We really do not need to be told about the kind of times that we are living in. It's all too evident. It's all too clear before all of us. And so we read from 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 9. We began to see certain things. But as is usual with me, I didn't just want to assume that because I teach English, that I knew what perilous meant. I said, let me even go and look again and see what perilous meant. You know, what does it really mean? And I saw that it comes from the word peril, which in itself means danger. Peril, which means danger. I saw all therefore that perilous can mean Exposure to injury, exposure to loss, exposure to destruction. It can also mean grave risk, jeopardy. Those are the kind of words that you see associated with the word perilous. So, something that causes or may cause injury, loss, destruction, all of that. In such a time that can be described as perilous, what are the things we see? Insecurity. We see that the time is precarious. To be precarious means to be hanging on something that almost has no balance. So it could fall off at any point in time. I also saw threatening. That means very threatening times. Anything can begin to threaten your peace, your joy, your life, your livelihood. Anything can begin to threaten you. I saw treacherous also. We know that treacherous means something that is deceiving. You may be looking at something and yet it is not exactly what you are seeing. I saw being unsure. You're not even sure what's going to happen next. If there is a time that we are not sure what's going to happen next, it is now. Nobody is sure what's going to happen. I saw vulnerable, wicked, and all of that. If we look at that in um, Second uh, Timothy 3, 1 to 9, I went to look at it in the Amplified Version of the Bible. And in the Amplified, I saw something like, but understand this, that in the last days we come, set in perilous times, of great stress and trouble, hard to deal with and hard to bear. 
verse 2 begins by saying, For people will be lovers of self and utterly self-centered. It is calling for an understanding on your part and on my part about the times that we live in. It says, but understand this. And then I saw, last days we come. Amplified puts in the word, set in. And to set in means to settle in with us, to relax around us. When you say to somebody, have you settled into a new house? You're saying, have you, have you kind of settled and have you relaxed in that place? And so evil times, perilous times, dangerous times have settled in around us. It's not like they came on an errand that are going away. It is that there is a settling, a relaxation of evil all around us. So, it says also a period of great stress and trouble. The word stress in itself is bad enough. But the Bible qualifies it and says great stress and great trouble. So that none of us will be in any doubt as to the time that we live in. And then in that same Amplified, it also says hard to deal with and hard to bear. The times that we live in are hard to deal with. The times that we live in are hard to bear. These are the features of the time that we live in. Now, when a situation proves too difficult to deal with, when it becomes unbearable, when it's not easy to deal with anymore, how does man react to a situation like that? The tendency usually is to give in. Ah, there's nothing else I can do now. I've been overcome by all of this. You can give in. You can yield. You can succumb to all that pressure. You can surrender to it. And I'm praying that that will not be the reaction of any of us here this morning in the name of Jesus. And Amplified also seems to give a reason for this situation. It says, four, four people have become four. So if you remove the word for, they can actually say because. So these are the features of the times. But there is also a for. A because people have become lovers of self and utterly self-centered. There is, it's not just that people have become lovers of themselves. It is that they have become utterly when you say the word utterly in English, it means completely, totally. So I begin by featuring on myself. I end by focusing on myself. Everything has to be around me. I'm going to very quickly run through a few features of this times. We know them already, so I really didn't want to spend time there. I wanted us to get to the second part of this message. People will become lovers of money. If you go to that same Amplified again, it says, they will be aroused by an inordinate, greedy desire for wealth. An inordinate, greedy desire for wealth. We all know what the word inordinate means. You know, something that is almost inside of you. Something that is almost inert. And it is evil. It is not a correct thing. When you see somebody that has an inordinate ambition, that person can do anything to get to where they are going to. And so there is this inordinate Greed, desire for wealth. I don't need to tell you about that. I keep begging people to stop sending certain kinds of images to my phone. Two days ago, it was a man that killed his three-year, six-year-old child. Cut off the head, cut off the legs. I'm not able to look at such pictures. I quickly delete them. But those are the kind of things that come to my I'm not sure it's just my phone. He's a young boy. He's told to bring somebody's um, liver for um, ritual. 
He actually catches somebody. Butchers. I don't even know where the liver is in somebody's heart or the kidney. But this boy found it and took out whatever he took out and left the, and the carcass. I'm sure you all saw it. I don't want to go on and on. Those are the things that we are seeing today. You know? And you see that as these things are coming, young children are picking the phone and he's looking. I'm, I've never been able to see a headless person and to look at what the neck looks like without the head. I can't look. Or the hand, you know, with blood at that end or the leg. But these young children are looking. And they are becoming familiar and comfortable with such gory images. Drug trafficking. Parents are killing children. Children are killing parents. Cheating, corruption, all of that. Proud and arrogant. That's another thing the Bible describes. And these words I'm using, they're not my words, so this is the word in the Bible. It says proud and arrogant and contemptuous boasters. That's what we're seeing everywhere. People are boasting of evil. They are proud and they are arrogant. He says people will be abusive. They will be blasphemous, scoffing. People are blasphemous. They say anything. Anything is now a joke. Fortunately, the other day, I don't know who the minister is, but he was standing before a congregation and he was talking about the fact, this new trend amongst us now, where um, um, comedians are brought into the church. Thank God for our kind of church. Comedians come and sit down. I've seen some of those videos. And then he will turn and address the pastor. Papa and mama. And then he's on the pulpit and he's making jokes. And everybody will laugh. And this man said, how dare you do that? And he said, have you ever seen a comedian enter a mosque to go and crack jokes? Have you seen a comedian enter a shrine to go and crack jokes? It is only in the household of God that such things are beginning to happen. Because the world is encroaching in on us and we are not even aware of what is happening to us. People are going to be disobedient to parents. Look around. Children are wild. They are unruly. They are untamed. All kinds of things are happening. People will be without natural affection. Loss of human affection. When I look at those things in the Bible, when I pick each one, I begin to wonder that people are going to be without natural affection. So you find that a human being actually has no human affection anymore. Because if he does, how is he going to tie somebody up? The person is crying, leave me now, leave me now. And he takes a knife. He's not under hospital environment. He doesn't have anesthesia. He doesn't have surgical blade. Maybe a machete. Maybe an axe. And he's hitting another person. And blood is gushing out. And it doesn't mean anything to him because there is something he wants to take inside of that person. So I saw that the Bible said long ago that human beings will be without human affection. They will be callous. They will be inhuman. And they will be relentless in their pursuit of evil. Human beings are relentless in their pursuit of evil. The one we heard yesterday is definitely not the one we are going to hear at the end of this day. We are looking at characteristics of the perilous times as presented in the Bible before us. That human beings are going to be relentless. I hope you know what it means to be relentless. You are not stopping. Nothing is stopping you. You are not getting tired in what you are pursuing. The word relentless can have a good path if you are pursuing something good. If I am relentless in my zeal for God. If I am relentless in doing the things of God, that's good. But the Bible says that they are relentless in their pursuit of evil. They don't admit truth and they don't accept appeasement. You know, there are things you see in the Bible and you begin to wonder. That somebody will not agree to call to a truth. That means we are quarreling and I said, nah, because they are, eh, let's agree to end this matter. And the Bible says it's not possible to them. Because I want to appease you. I know I offended you. 
They are not hearing that. That is the character of the human being that we are seeing in our time. And the seventh thing I noted there is that they are slanderers, false accusers, troublemakers, intemperate. And number eight is lose in morals and conduct. I don't want to talk about that one. Adultery, fornication, immorality at its highest peak. Last week we had a meeting and I happened to be coming back rather late. I don't usually come back that late. And as I got to, I think it's um, the, the roundabout around the fire service. I don't know if that's the one that is called Otiba. I was shocked to see very young girls in, di- in different states of nudity and undress. Standing all along there. That place actually looked like a market square. This was about past, maybe to 11 in the night, past 11. And it was a beehive of activities. I said, God, you know, sometimes you and I are in our home, so we don't even know what is really happening. And as I looked at some of the girls, my heart went out to them. I said, God, these are daughters of women like me. Daughters caught in Satan's train. The enemy has tied them with a rope and he has them on a leash. And they don't even know what they are doing. If not, what is she standing there for? A man will stop and you enter his car. You don't know who the man is. You have never seen him from Adam. He can carry you to the hotel room and cut off your head. What kind of money are you looking for? It is bad enough that you you are going around with a man that you know. But the one that you don't know by 12 o'clock in the night, for goodness sake. Is that the extent to which the devil can blind somebody? So, different things. We all had, um, um, when our uncle Nebo was here, he told us about Obama and all, you all know probably more than I do, about how the U.S. is um, promoting gay marriage and all of that. Immorality at its peak. And it's not just the U.S., so it's right here, it's in Enugu, it's everywhere. Everywhere. And it says that people will be uncontrolled and fierce. People will be haters of good. People will be treacherous and all of that and all of that. So many other things. I think I will leave the rest because of time and just talk about lovers of pleasure. Today, all of us love pleasure. There is such a pursuit of pleasure. All kinds of things. All kinds of things to entertain you. Sometimes, some of them look very innocent, actually. And then you find that you're constantly looking for a form of amusement. Even us, everyone. When it begins to become excessive, check yourself. The Bible says that our generation will be lovers of pleasure. Comedians everywhere, all kinds of things. And then finally, people hold on to a form of piety that is a form of religion. Like somebody was saying the other day, it's very unfashionable to actually say that you're not born again. Everybody is born again. Ask, try it, ask anybody. So everybody is born again. But when you look at the life of the people who are claiming to be born again, the people are having a form of religion, but they're denying and uh, they're strangers to the power of God. Their conduct belies the genuineness of their profession. The, where we read from the gospel this morning is another reference of characteristics of this time. And I will give you two more references. Matthew 24, 3-13 also tells us about um, characteristics of the end time. We can go on and on, but we don't have the time. Now, having said that, having mentioned a few signs of the times that we live in, what are we expected to do? If I know that the times I'm living in, um, 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 Peter said, but understand this. Okay, if I understand this, what next? What am I supposed to do? And so you go to Second Peter 3.11. He didn't just write it for giving us information's sake. 
You know, somebody can give you information. People in prayer houses give fantastic information. They do. But they don't have solution. They can tell you the person that will come to your house by 5 o'clock tomorrow, the kind of dress you'll be wearing, the kind of car he's driving. They can tell you such things very accurately. But the difference between them and the children of God is that they don't have the ability to bring solution. But here, Peter tells us in verse 11. First, he tells us, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. If this day of the Lord is going to come like a thief, and if we are expected to prepare to meet our God, you know, somebody was sharing a few weeks ago, he said something about people that were saying, uh-uh, that this is our theme for the year. Does it mean everyone is going to die? Why prepare to meet thy God? And he says, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. That is why we have to be preparing. Because I don't know when it's going to happen. I don't know when the Lord will come. And he goes on to say in verse 11, Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. He goes on to tell you what to do. In the midst of all this, in the midst of all the confusion, the question now is, having known that, what next? What do I do? He says in that Second um, Peter 3 and 11. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly life. As you look forward to the day of God and speed is coming. So there is an assignment for me. The assignment is that while I'm waiting, I'm actually preparing. And it's not just enough to say the times are evil, the times are evil. And like I said at the beginning, it's also not correct for me to give up. It's not expected that I should give up. On the contrary, I'm seeing that I'm being encouraged to live holy and godly life. Now, as we go through the Bible, we'll see men and women who stood for God in their generation. That means those people were able to heed this advice that we are seeing today in Second Peter 3.11. Diverse men and women, many of them, they lived, they gave heed to that advice. The advice to live holy and godly life. There is another thing I want to share with us. When we read Bible characters, oftentimes we think, eh, now those, those people were in the Bible now, eh, that time things were different. We're going to see now that times were not really different, even at that time. The tendency to think that people in the Bible, eh, people of old, they didn't have the kind of pressures we had. They did. They had the same kind of pressure. And I want us to see from the Bible that God has always recognize that there is wickedness in man. We're going to see from Genesis 6, verses 5 to 7. Please open everyone to Genesis 6, 5 to 7. Genesis 6, 5 to 7. But I'm going to read it here so that I'll be fast. Genesis 6, 5 to 7. I'm going to read it from two different versions of the scripture. And then we'll, we'll talk about it a little bit and move on. I'll read first from King James. And God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of his thoughts and his heart was only evil continually. And it repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, and the creeping thing and the fowls of the air, for it repented me that I have made them. Did you see that in your Bible? Okay, I'll read it from a message. Please listen again. God saw that human evil was out of control. 
People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. That's the way message put it. I'll read it again. God saw that human evil was out of control. People thought evil, imagined evil, 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 evil from morning to night. In those days, how did our grandmothers used to say, how many times did I call your name? How many times did God write evil here? This one is more than three times. God was sorry, that's verse 6. God was sorry that he made the human race in the first place. It broke his heart. Verse 7, God said, I will get rid of my ruined creation. Make a clean sweep. People, animals, snakes, and bugs, the works. I'm sorry I made them. Honestly, when I read that, something just happened in my heart. I said, Chai, how can God finish looking at me now and just say, I regret that I made this one. This thing is a ruined creation. If we had a baker here, she would tell us what will happen. Yes, they go bakes. If you're making cake and you had every other ingredient and then you were going to pour sugar and you poured in a, um, a bowl of salt, is there anything else you can do to it? It's beyond redemption. You have to pour it away. Ruined creation. She was trying to create something. She put egg. She put milk. She put butter. And then when she wanted to take sugar, she took salt. There is nothing you can do to that thing. You have to discard it. And I said, God, is this how you're seeing the people that you labor to make? Ruined creation. Ruined. Ruined creation. And verse 6 said, it broke his heart. And when I'm looking at my life, the things I'm doing, am I breaking God's heart? Is he looking at me and saying, I'm sorry I made this one. I'm sorry I made this one. Imagine. He set out to make me for something good. That person setting out to make a cake was wanting to make something so beautiful. All of us like it. I like eating cakes. And then it became a ruined thing. He said he's sorry. So, but you know, just like a loving parent never gives up on an erring child, God was still looking. He kept looking. This thing is ruined. This thing is horrible. But what else do I do? What can I do? And he was hoping and looking and looking and looking in the midst of all that decay. And do you know something else? That same message, verse 8, if you move down, you still have it there with you. Genesis 6, verse 8. He said, but Noah was different. But Noah. So in the midst of all these things, God found a but. May you and I be the buts that God will find in Jesus' name. This one says, but, God, but Noah was different. God liked what he saw. Where, he was, where his heart was bleeding and tearing on account of the others, he saw this one. He was encouraged. He was happy. And then what happens? Noah found grace in the eyes of God. I'm saying that God was looking. There's a looking. Because what we saw at the beginning of verse 5, he says, And God saw. So God was looking. He was looking to see. So he saw. And he kept looking. And he saw Noah. I don't know what God sees as he's looking at you and I sitting here. Another thing I want to point out about Noah is that Noah was living his life like us. Because did Noah, uh, did Noah think his name was going to be in the Bible at the time he was living? No. Did Noah think the scripture was going to write about him? No. He was just living his normal life. 
He was just living like any other person, going about his business. Having a wife, having children, doing everything like we are doing. And every other person was doing the same. His neighbors were doing the same. Everyone around him, they were all going about their normal businesses. But there was a difference. When the time came, even when he saw great wickedness and he was warning them, you know, in, I think it's in the New Testament that I said, but that righteous man whose heart was vexed, was tormented on account of the evil that he was seeing. For many of us, our hearts still are bleeding on account of the things we are seeing all around us today. And he kept warning them. And he kept warning them. They didn't listen. Eventually, he was the only one that was saved. And this brings me to, now look very briefly, how we are living in the present. So we see now that evil did not start in our generation. Even in Genesis, even in Genesis, God saw that the heart of man was evil and desperately wicked. I saw one translation that said, relentlessly wicked. Wickedness and evil does not end in the heart of man. That was in, in, in Genesis. So it didn't start today. So all the pressures that were here, here, they were also there at that time. And we're going to see that from a few examples. The situation today is probably just what it was then. Evil everywhere. And human beings were just doing whatever they wanted. I want to look at three major ways. So it's easy for us to understand what we're trying to say. There is an expectation in the heart of God. Although he realized and recognized that this his creation was June, there was still something in his heart. That paternal instinct, hoping that he could rescue us from our mess. And so he saw Noah and he rescued him. Now, I'm also saying that in the midst of it all, Noah stood for God. Or did he not stand for God? He did. So there is something God is wanting us to do. That even in these last days, even in these perilous times, that will, it's, not, no, it's no longer shall come. It is that they have come. Like our weekend program um, preacher told us. The times have come. He showed us from scripture that the time is now. And so, what is God expecting us to do? He's expecting you to stand for him. And this standing is in three dimensions that God is wanting you and I to stand for him. And we're going to look quickly at those three dimensions. One, in your personal work with him. God is expecting you to stand for him in your personal work with him. Which one is your personal work with him? That one that nobody is seeing. As we are sitting here now, only I can talk about myself and my relationship with God. I can wear white from my head to my toe and come here every Sunday and sit here. And you look at me and say, that one, she's just white like that. It's only I that know. How is it with me and God? Who is God to me? What am I to God? What am I to God? I listened to a sermon some many years ago and the person said, what are you worth in the kingdom of God? So he said, some people are heavy weights. Some people are um, light weights. Some people are heavy weights. When the sons of Sceva went to pursue demons and began to talk in the name of Jesus, the demon said, Paul, we know him all. Even the Jesus you're talking about, we also know him, but to you, who are you? There was no record of him. He had no weight. He had no value. The demons knew. They know your weight. They know my own weight. In their kingdom, they know. They put us on scales and they know when you're talking. Who is that one? She's just a noisemaker. Who is, ah, because this one is talking. Let us wait. Just like the story somebody told. That they were in a plane. I'm sure we've heard that over and over again. The plane had a problem. And somebody was drinking and being very carefree. And they said to him, ah, everybody is panicking. You, you're not worried. What's your own? He said, if you know what I know, you stop worrying. They kept asking, what is it that you know that we don't know? He said, ah, that man sitting there, that is Billy Graham. 
because he's here, this plane cannot crash. You know, he knew he had come. He, he doesn't know God though. He doesn't have any business with God. But he knew that this one is a heavy weight in the hand of God. So because of that, this plane cannot crash. So he was drinking his booze and alcohol and having fun. And the rest of them were, were, were uh, uh, fidgeting. What are you worth? So in your personal walk with God, are you absolutely standing for God? There where nobody sees. Are you standing for God? Are you standing for him? Are you born again? God is looking to see in your decisions, the decisions you take. How vibrant is your communion with him? What is your relationship with the word of God? At this point in our life, what is our relationship with the word of God? The word of God is the instrument that God uses to accomplish anything that he wants to accomplish. What is your weight with it? What is your relationship? How does it engage you? How do you allow it to engage you? Is it evident to you and to everybody that you're born again? Do you do what God tells you to do? If you don't even look at the word, how are you going to know what God is telling you to do? Do you hear him when he speaks? When my heart is the market square, how can I hear God speak? Does he speak to you? We can go on and on. That is clear. We all know what I'm talking about. In the secret, when I take decisions, when nobody is seen, where, where do I tilt? Do I tilt towards good or evil? Do I tilt towards... Bible says that God desires truth. In the innermost being, even where nobody is seen, do you tell the truth in the most minute things? There's also the story of a new pastor that boarded a bus in a new town somewhere in the United States and was going to a place and he paid for the bus, and the man overpaid him by just a little bit. So when he sat at the back of the bus, he said, mm, what do I do with this money now? Should I return it? One mind told him, ah, this little money. Forget it, he won't notice. It's just an oversight. And so his heart kept battling. And then when he got to his bus stop, he took that money and gave the man. I said, see, you overgave, you overpaid me. And the man said, I was watching to see whether you're the new preacher in town, whether you returned the money or not. He didn't know. He didn't know. He was being checked. And people are checking us and we are failing everywhere. In our offices, what are we doing? And the next thing is your family life. God is waiting to see how you are standing for him in your family. How are you standing for him in your family? Are you representing Christ openly in your family? You, father, what kind of a father are you? What is the position that God occupies in your heart? Our children see it. Our children know. It's not enough that I'm preaching here. When I put down the microphone, my children know where I rate with God. They know. Everyone in my house, they all know. So if you're pretending, they know. You, Father, what do your people say about your relationship with God as a father? God said about Abraham in Genesis 18:19. For I know him, that he will command his children and his household after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. Can that be said about you, Father? Sitting here and looking at me now. Can God say that about you? That he knows this Father. I know this Father. This one. He will command his household. It's not just that they will command the household. It's that when they command, the household will do. That's Genesis 18 and 19. And say, husband, what kind of husband are you? Is your wife next in your heart after God? Actually, after God, the next person in your heart is your wife. But is that the case? You may be sitting here wearing a uniform. We're looking at you shining. Is she crying sitting there before you? Is her heart bleeding because of some of the words you said to her? Over nothing. What kind of a husband are you? Many women are sad. Many men are also sad. In bitterness and in distress of spirit. What kind of a husband are you? Bible clearly instructs you, husband, to love your wife. Do you truly love her above all else? Are you sure? Above all else? Before God? Can you say it? I love my wife before every, above every other person. Can you say it? God is checking that. He's checking to see. 
if you can say that. And if you love her, how do you treat her? How do you treat her? When she sees you, does her heart rejoice? The thing that can make any woman happier than anything else is when she's confident of her husband's love. Nothing else matters to her. And you, wife, is your husband. You know, in, we, we like singing, in, um, singing from Proverbs about the virtuous woman. Does your husband go out and stand confidently on account of having you as a wife? How is it with you? Are you standing for God there too? Are difficult times making you to cut corners? Are you obedient and submissive? Are you a caregiver? Are you a homemaker? Are you an appropriate helpmate for your husband? What kind of a wife are you? And you, child, who is here listening to me, what kind of a child are you? The Bible says you should honor your parents. Do you do that? When your mother speaks one, you speak to. My mother said, Oh, Ibamaka, oh, Maka Nekuafizionu these days. Is it true? Can it be said of you as a young child? You speak grammar, so you say anything you want to your parents. Are you honoring your parents? Are you obedient and submissive? Go and study Joseph, Mary, Esther, even Jesus himself. These are examples of children. When they were children, they obeyed. They lived in obedience. Esther did whatever her uncle told her. Even in the king's palace, she was ready to obey her uncle. And you, wife, mother, Eunice is an example. Lois is an example. They instilled the word of God into Timothy. And when he stood up, when he grew up, he was an outstanding person. At least say it first. Eh, I'm saying it, my child is not hearing. Say it first. Heaven will bear you record that you said it. Praise the Lord. And the third aspect is your public life. Are you also standing for God in the public? These three things we have said. Your personal work with God. Your relationship with your family, your spouse, your children. And your public life. The, the relationship with God acts as a connecting bridge between those two. I can't be effective in my relationship with my husband and children or my wife and children if I don't have good communion with God. And I can't be effective outside also if I don't have the relationship I should have with God. So the relationship with God is primary and acts as a connector, as a binder between these spheres of our lives. Are you standing for God outside your home, in your place of work, in your business, in your school, occupation, even in Christian ministry? Are you standing for God? People are saying all kinds of things about ministers. People are saying, ah, if this one, I won't go there. This minister, I won't go there. That one, I won't go there. What about you? We're all ministers. How are we ministering? How are we holding the word of God that he has put into our hand? And so, our examples we're going to look at, and like I said, we'll just stop wherever the time ends. I want us to quickly look at a few people. Joseph. I want to look at two Josephs. One, Joseph, the husband of Jesus. He too stood. He allowed the course of his life to be changed because of his decision to stand for God. Imagine a man that is going to marry somebody. You have never touched her. She's pregnant. Because you're a very good man, you didn't go out to start announcing that she's going to, that she should go home, that she's a wayward woman. You didn't do that. You said, okay, quietly, let her just go home because the man is peace love. And then the Holy Spirit says, no, you will take her. The child is mine. Keep her. And so uh, he took Mary and kept her. And then the, the Lord comes again. Take Mary. Take your child. Run to so, 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 and so. He was a carpenter. He had business he was doing. Do you think it was very easy for him to pack and run to another place where he didn't know anybody? But he did that. Standing for God demands that we make sacrifices. Joseph made those sacrifices. Go back and look at what it means that you want to marry somebody who is pregnant. 
as a man. You know what that means. He stood for God when he heard the voice of God. What about Joseph, the son of Jacob? That one, I don't like talking about him because I love him absolutely. He stood for God. He stood as a young boy. He stood as a servant. He stood as a slave. Where every situation he had been there, he was standing. Nothing would move him. Nothing would make him change. From being chief servant, he became prime minister. He still stood. And when it was time for the devil to tempt him, he brought a beautiful woman, not just a, a fellow servant like, like himself. Because it would have been easy for him to become boyfriend and girlfriend with a fellow servant. It was the wife of Yoga. Beautiful looking woman, I'm sure. And, Dave, and Joseph said something. He said, how then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? That was the primary thing on which Joseph laid his decision. It's not about you. It's not about anything. It is that this thing is going to be a great wickedness against God. And Joseph stood. And for standing, nobody applauded him. Because you and I, if we even manage and stand small, I want to come and tell pastors so that they will start telling his sister Jama, sister Jama stood in her school, sister Jama. He ended in prison for standing for God. You know the rest of the story. I will leave it there. What small, tiny or small wickedness are you being tempted to do against God? And what has been your response? Joseph is not only an example. In the public service too. From there, you know, he became a top government functionary. We know the rest of the story. He stood for God. In his personal life, in his family life, and his public life, Joseph stood for God. Daniel stood for God in the public service. It wasn't easy for him at all. The times too were perilous in a strange land. Different um, customs, different traditions. He didn't find excuses. I read what he said. He said in Daniel 1, 8, 8. But Daniel proposed in his heart that he would not define himself with the portion of the king's meat, nor with the wine which he drank. Which king's meat are you eating in secret? Which king's wine are you drinking? Which one are you taking? The king's meat. The king's meat is very appealing. It's beautiful. The king's wine is served in goblets. Beautiful golden goblets. Which one are you drinking when nobody is saying? He had already determined in his heart. This kingsmith, I'm not going to be a part of it. Is it the kingsmith of compromise in your place of work, in business, shortchanging? You, market woman, you have different cups. What are you doing? What are we doing? I'm a lecturer, my students will call me. Am I ready to change grades? Which kingsmith am I compromising on? It's all the kingsmith being handed over to us. Different portions wherever we are. Is the kingsmith. The king of this world is the devil. And that is his meat. He's giving us. In little, little portion. But Daniel stood and he was not going to take it. So what is my excuse? What are you doing? Are you gradually partaking of this? Daniel knew that it would defile him more. Do you even realize that it would defile you? And that was why he said, I won't be a part of it. What of our sister Jael? Our sister Jael, that is in Judges 4 and 5. A woman like you and I. She was a wife too. She was probably a mother. The Bible doesn't tell us. The wife of Heba, the Kenite. Right there inside her home, she smote an army general. A big general. Jael slay him. She was able to fearlessly. How did she do it? She was very hospitable. They were, their friends, I don't have time to um, talk about it a lot. But she was hospitable. She, he wanted water, she gave him milk. She got him to relax. And he thought, yes, I mean, our families are friends now. But he was an enemy of God. He was an enemy of God's people. 
And what did she do when he was asleep? Honestly, when I look at that, I don't know how she did, did it. But when God wants to use you, he will give you supernatural energy. How did she use peg? And he, she didn't even, what if he falls as, what if he wakes up? She will be dead. But she smote him. She didn't make any mistake. If you go to Judges 5, you will see the song about her. Beautiful song. And I want to tell you, those times were not sweet times. In that Judges 5, we were told, the times were evil. The highways were deserted. In fact, at the end of Judges, we were told, Israel had no king. And every man did what was right in his eyes. It was at that time that Deborah stood. Jael stood. Just those ones stood. So what are we talking about? The times were not different. She slay an army general to her credit. Deborah too stood. She was a mother. She was a wife. She was a mother in Israel. She became a judge. She was standing in her personal life. We didn't hear that her husband, Lapidot, came to complain. No. She was a wife. She was a mother. And what amazes me about her is that she was not just a mother in her family. She said, until I, Deborah, arose. A mother in Israel. Imagine. That when it was time to go to war, the army general said, Ah, I'm not going anywhere unless you come out. And she said, Ah, hey man, you won't go unless I come. I am not going. You must come. And she said, They will say that this victory, let them say, just be coming, let us be going. She didn't mind. He didn't mind. That was the woman that stood for God. And she was the judge of the place too. She administered her work as a judge excellently. She was a remarkable family person. She stood tall as a wife, as a mother. And as a public figure. Praise the Lord. What about Mordecai? Mordecai, he too stood right there at the king's gate. A very ordinary, insignificant man at the gate. But he was standing for God. That's what made the difference. And when the enemy arranged something to happen, that he should buy, he said, me, me, Moa, an Israelite, a Jew, bow before you. Haman, man, it can't happen. If it's you and I will bow and tremble many, many times and call him Onyisi, 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 Onyisi. He said, no, whatever would happen, let it happen. I'm not going to bow before you. Because he knew who he was standing for. And so many, many things happened. And before we knew it, he had become elevated to a position of prominence. And we didn't read that he failed God. Mordecai stood. He boldly refused to bow before the kings of this earth. And Esther, his niece, she too stood for God. You, that you're a girl, that you think we have never seen anybody as pretty as you. That your neck is like peacock and you're walking like this. Go and look at Esther. By the time you finish looking at Esther's profile in the Bible, you know that your beauty is nothing. She was exceedingly beautiful. And then they took time to further make her more beautiful. The best things in the land, the lotions, everything. And Esther came out beautiful. But she was obedient through it all. She stood she stood for God and it became a testimony. She saved her people from death because she decided to stand for God. What about Ezra? Ezra stood. The hand of God was on him. As I was reading Ezra 7, it says, um, I see that God's hand was on Ezra with favor. Uh-uh. When I went to Ezra 7, 9, it says, For the gracious hand of his God was on him. So it wasn't just, I mean, if anybody tells me the hand of God is upon me, now I'm going to be feeling very, very happy. I'll be very happy. This one says the gracious hand. It was not just ordinary hand, even the gracious one. But why was that so? Because verse 10 of that same Ezra 7 says, For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and observance of the law of the Lord. And teaching is decrees and laws in Israel. There was something Ezra did. 
This was why that hand of God was gracious on him. He decided to study the word. He didn't end there. He did it. He didn't end there. He began to teach others to do it. And so the hand of God was on him because he stood. Nehemiah stood. Several other people stood. To crown it all, Jesus came and he stood for God as well. He stood. It wasn't easy for him. Go back and look at the times and the life of Jesus. And that's why today the, um, the people of Israel are quarreling with that thing. Um, I think it's passions of Christ. Because they keep saying, no, 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 we didn't do all those terrible things. But that's what they did. But as they're looking at it being played before their eyes now, they're no longer happy to accept that they did that. Jesus suffered and he died. He himself, why? He stood and made all the difference. So today, what do I have at my disposal? You that you're here. I that I'm here. We have what this one did not have. What do we have? We have Jesus himself. He has given us himself. He has given us his word. He has given us his spirit. He has given us his blood. He has given us an abundance of his grace. And that's the final scripture we're looking at now. My very favorite scripture in Bible says that Titus 2, 11 to 14. He says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. And verse 13 says, Looking for that blessed hope, and the glorious appearing of the great God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. 14. Who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from all iniquity, and purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. That grace has appeared to you. That grace has appeared to me. That grace has appeared to everybody. But not everybody can appropriate it. You can only appropriate it when you do verse 14. When you recognize that he has given himself for you, to redeem you from all iniquity. Can you bow your head and begin to pray at this time? I don't know what the Lord has said to you. Have you recognized that you're not standing in one area of your life or the other? Are you standing or you failed to stand or you were standing before and you're no longer standing? Today is another day. The Bible says this is the day of salvation. If you hear the word, harden not your heart. Would you like to Ask the Lord to help you to stand. Are you standing in your personal life? Are you standing in your private life? Are you standing in your family life? If not, please, can you ask the Lord to help you? He's checking. He's checking to see how we're standing for him. And I'm trusting that the Lord will truly make us stand for him in these perilous times. The times are evil, yes. But his grace is able to help us to keep standing for him. I'll just ask our reverend to pray for us that we will be able to stand as we should. In Jesus' name. Father, we thank you for your word that has come forth to us today. Thank you, Lord, for speaking through your daughter and reminding us of the need to be prepared, to be ready, even for these days, these perilous times, awaiting your second coming. Father, thank you, Lord, because we will not be caught unawares. And the words we have heard today will not stand in judgment against us. We shall continue, O Lord God, to uphold your word and to be ready at your coming. Help us, O Lord, that in all that we shall do, in all that we shall say, in every action that we take, Father, may we continue to look unto Jesus, who is the author and finisher of our faith. And are there things that we have done already that seem to have negated our belief in you. Father, we ask you to forgive us. Make us new again and cleanse us from all filthiness. 
on the last day, Lord, may we be found worthy amongst those who will be raptured, among those who will be resurrected unto eternal life. Thank you, Father, for speaking through your daughter. Thank you, Lord, for every answer to every prayer. In Jesus' name we pray.